Canucks Central Thursday. It's Dan Riccio and Satyar Shaw in the Kintech studio. Canucks Central is brought to you by Grip Auto and Tire. Quality service you can trust and 14 locations to serve you. We're back from Abbotsford. Just finished the drive back, actually, Seth. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a nice long drive. I mean, hey, listen, <laughs> they, took ni- they took really good care of us in Abbotsford, so uh, it was really nice getting did. out there, and it made the, the trip worth it. Uh, not going to lie. The one thing uh, I, I, I'm always amazed by when we do the uh, annual preseason game in Abbotsford now is just how uh, how nice everybody is to mm-hmm. us. Not that people are generally not nice to me, uh, but, you know, I'll be walking around the streets of Vancouver and people will be like, <laughs> Reach, your takes suck. Like what? What did I say? What, what did I do? Stop talking Italian like that. Nobody likes it. You know, like, but in Abbotsford, everybody's just super nice. Well, people are friendly. Yeah. Maybe we should uh, set up shop in Abbotsford <laughs> where people are nicer and kinder to Dan Riccio. I don't know. It, it, it works both ways. Like, you don't want everybody to always be nice to you. Like, sometimes you want people to, like, keep you in check, you know? Yeah. Like, hey, your takes suck. Oh, okay. Okay, right. All right. I got I to gotta watch my takes because <laughs> people are calling it out. Um, always, always nice to meet uh, some listeners as we did yesterday. And uh, the building was... Look, as far as preseason hockey goes, mm-hmm. the building was, well, it had an incredible atmosphere. Anytime, it's one of the reasons I do actually like the, you know, every year when the, the Leafs visit Rogers Arena, I do like, you know, the wrestling style crowd of mm-hmm. go Leafs go versus go Canucks go chance. Yeah. And, and that whole atmosphere, I think, brings a lot of energy out of the players and it's always an entertaining game. That's kind of what it felt like last night in Abbotsford. There was quite a few Edmonton fans. People were into it, and they got a hell of a game. Yeah, it wasn't uh, the cleanest. Mm-hmm. Canucks still need to work on some things defensively. <laughs> yeah. But um, as far as, you know, like if you're just going and you're paying a bunch of your your hard-earned money to to watch a hockey game with your family, you got to see an incredible Connor McDavid goal, <laughs> one that's going to be on highlight reels yeah. forever uh, and all season long. And uh, Elias Patterson put on a show of his own. So it was a pretty good game to be at. It, it was a lot of fun. And hey, the Canucks picked up a W, which is something we've talked so much about in this market as far as how this team has performed or not performed in the preseason so far. Um, and, you know, it, it was positive. And we, and we really, you know, we went through a lot of that stuff on the postgame show as far as how they played. Check it out on the podcast. 100%. As far as Patterson is concerned, we spent some time on him. But when you just think about how he played and the more you think about his season and what he can do this upcoming year. It's, it's, it's pretty exciting. Like it, I think my greatest takeaway from the entire preseason has been how good Elias Pettersson has look, looked and him being the most impressive player for the Canucks. Like, what does that really mean for the team? What can it mean for the team? So Elias Pettersson in every preseason game that he has played has been the best player on the ice. Mm-hmm. And it, it hasn't really been particularly uh, close. Well, I guess you could say McDavid was pretty good last night, too. Mm-hmm. But I still think um, you know, the way Patterson has played, from a Canucks perspective, he has been the best player on the ice when he has played in a preseason game. Yeah. Uh, what does it mean for the team 
that's kind of hard to to quantify right now. But I will say one of the things I wanted and felt like I needed to see in preseason Mm -hmm. was Patterson be ready to go. And, you know, we didn't get that last year. I, I don't think there's any doubt right now that Pedersen is in form and ready to carry on what he was doing towards the end of last season. Yeah, and when we talk about the culture actually changing with the team, we talk about the leadership group changing and the accountability, you know, starting internally and everything. If your best player or most talented forward, at least, is the guy that starts setting the standard consistently. Yeah. Does that mean the rest kind of raises as time goes on? Because one of the criticisms for Pedersen last year was he always looked looked a bit sad, looked a bit timid. He mm-hmm. you know, wasn't sure of himself. He, didn't, he wasn't the same guy on the ice. And also off the ice in practice, you saw him. He, he didn't look the same. He didn't have the same command and the same type of desire, it seemed, on the ice. Presence. Great, great word for it. His yeah. presence wasn't the same. But what, what does that do to the rest of the team? We talked about this year through the preseason, maybe you know that seriousness needs to be there a bit quicker. Does that start permeating through the team a bit more? When you know Patterson's that way, we know Quinn Hughes is wired that way as well. Do those guys maybe inspire more than your traditional leader if your best, most talented players are wired that way? Uh, I feel like Patterson is sort of ascending to that. Uh, he's never going to be the rah-rah leader that uh, JT Miller type is. I think Quinn has become more of a vocal leader as he's gotten uh, a little bit older, but I don't know if Pedersen ever really becomes that. I'll never truly know because mm-hmm. I'm not in the room for with the Canucks when those moments are happening. But his presence on the team is certainly felt. It was felt from a physical standpoint last night. The skill is there. He has been that guy that has set a high standard from day one, it's felt like, mm-hmm. since they opened training camp. I, I think that's a big part of it. The Canucks need that to happen. They need... Like Pedersen and Hughes are going to be the most talented skaters on this team. You know, despite the fact that they committed to JT Miller on a long-term deal, whether or not they commit to Bo Horvat on a long-term deal and whether or not he continues to wear the C for a lot of mm-hmm. years to come, Pedersen and Hughes are the franchise cornerstones that need to set the ultimate standard for this club in the way that Henrik and Daniel Sedin did. Well, and when you have players who no matter what happens, they're always pushing the pace. They're always fighting to play hard and they never kind of give up with how they play. That's what you want to see from this team. We we talk about maturity from this squad and then that's one of the big things that we have to see this upcoming season, right? Have the self-preparation. Don't get off to those bad starts. Have better practice habits. And the way Pedersen is practicing, the way he's playing through the preseason, his habits are excellent. Mm -hmm. And those are the things you have to start improving. And what better example of your best players doing so? And we talk about JT being that emotional leader, right? You know, Horvat's the guy who wears the C. But how do you actually improve your your habits? Yeah. It really is your best players who set that. Like, why are the habits so incredible in Pittsburgh? Because of Sidney Crosby. Yep. And you've got any Malkin even. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the standard they hold, they hold each other and everybody else to, you know, and uh, they're very demanding about how they how they are. That has to start happening here. Is it happening now? Perhaps. I mean, we're not always there, but they need to be more demanding of one another. And it's hard for a team to be successful or reach its potential if your most demanding players aren't your best players. Pedersen has been that uh, so far in this preseason. And it is preseason. So maybe... 
you know, as much as I was and have been concerned about the way the team has played to this point in preseason, mm-hmm. um, maybe I shouldn't be really over the moon about how good Pedersen has looked. But uh, again, I think we all understand it doesn't take a, a super deep hockey analyst to watch Elias Pedersen and be like, Oh, that guy's really good. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and he's got that superstar feel when he's in form like that. And that's how he's played uh, since the start of preseason games. And it continued last night, but what does this, you know, what does this actually mean for the club sat? Does this, you know, does Patterson having a breakout year or more of a complete season than we saw last year? Does that guarantee them playoffs? Um, does it take them from being a bubble playoff team to something more than that? Mm-hmm. You know, what would uh, Patterson realizing his potential in this, what his age 24 season? Um, what, what would that mean for the club? Well, if Pedersen plays at that level, this team's going to make the playoffs. You know, again, disclaimer, injuries, as long as you don't have, uh, you know, severely debilitating injuries across the boards, if Pedersen plays at that level, it pretty much ensures that you are a playoff team when you have a superstar player or a guy that plays at a superstar level and you have the talent the rest of this team has plus the goaltending and you have Quinn Hughes on the back end. That should catapult you there. More than anything, though, for this team to become a Stanley Cup contender – there's a certain mindset that has to happen. Yeah. You know, and do we start seeing that this year? I mean, for as much as we talk about on ice success, and obviously that's, that's, the, that's a huge part of this year, making the playoffs and, and building towards that. But do you start looking like a winning team? Do you start building the habits of a winning team? You know, because if they start doing those sort of things, then you forget so much about what you do this year and how far you get this year as long as you make the postseason. That type of mindset and mentality next year all of a sudden coming to training camp and all of a sudden the demand is higher. The group is slightly different. Maybe you're a little bit better. Then you can start taking that step and become a cont- becoming a contender. Go through, let's go through every, let's go through the, the most recent eras of the most, of the most successful Canucks teams. And you mentioned the Sedins, for instance. Yeah. When did that team become a contender is when the Sedins started taking leadership roles, right? Yep. When, when their standard was the one that everybody you know, followed after. And then not to say Nazlin and Morrison and those guys didn't, but these guys are Hall of Famers. It's a different level and there's a different level they got to to show a lot of that sort of stuff, right? And and the seriousness they had. They went super Saiyan. They really did. And even, you know, the Nazlin era, it was when Nazlin got the captaincy when all of a sudden he started taking off even more. That team became more of a contender. And even that squad, obviously with Bertuzzi and some of the immaturity that that plagued them and goaltending, you know, prevented them from ever reaching their potential. But it was when that guy grew into that role, when that team took that next step. Go back even Trevor Linden, yep. you know, 94, a huge part of that. Those players, Pavel Bure, never maybe your traditional leader, but a guy who worked hard, incredible talent, really comes into his prime and everybody you know, kind of falls behind a little bit in terms of the inspiration he brings with how he plays. That's where this has to go to. And when I see a guy like Pedersen wired the way he is in the preseason, you see Quinn Hughes be, be the way he is. And, and people are texting in like Ryan from Chilliwack, Quinn wearing an A last night. And, and all preseason, uh, Pedersen's had an A. Yep. Quinn's had an A when he's played. Last night, Pedersen didn't. But they're really trying to bring those guys into the leadership group. But it's not, you know, it, it, that has to happen. Like, they have to grow into being 
the leaders and the guys who are responsible for the future of this team. Like they have to undertake that responsibility. And it's only then when you take that accountability, you take that on when a team, when the team can take that true step to becoming a contender. It's uh, it, it's such an important year on that front because Pedersen is entering his statistical prime right now. Yeah. You know, we've learned enough about how the numbers trend and at age 24, which is what Pedersen will be come mm-hmm. November, that is the start of your statistical prime. And it usually lasts about three to four years from there. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to be terrible when he turns 28. It's just uh, generally a hockey player's best seasons mm-hmm. uh, on average land between ages 24 to 26. So these next three years are huge for Elias Pettersson. And you know him realizing that ceiling or starting to realize that ceiling statistically should start this year. And you know, there is the flip side of that, Sad, is that if it doesn't sort of happen, mm-hmm. then you have a bit of an existential crisis as far as the, 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 the way the build of this current Vancouver Canucks group is going. So the question really becomes... To what degree does he have to get there? Yeah. You know, I don't think it's a zero-sum game. Like, if he's not the complete Super Saiyan mode yes. this year, he's, he's not, not going to get there. He's not full Super Saiyan Goku. Right, but but how far this can is the, he get? This is the length of my Dragon Ball Z <laughs> knowledge, okay? Listen, you've already exceeded uh, the wealth of my knowledge. I'm digging deep into, like, you know, 13-year-old Dan Richo right now. I'm just, like, I'm just nodding along and saying, yeah, Reach, I'm with you. Great. I mean, I do understand that reference. I've seen enough memes to get okay. it, you know, so, so I get what you mean for this one yep. i probably wouldn't make it myself because i probably mess it up um but so how much of that has to happen i think what you're seeing from him now in terms of how he's playing and and how serious he is he maintains that all year yeah and you start seeing that you know posture change i think that's a huge step and neither of these guys are going to be the best versions of themselves this year no, but especially we talk about Quinn a lot because you already took that step in a big way, and we already kind of you know alluded to that with how he played down the stretch and and the role they took down the stretch, and now Pedersen with the way he's really assured of himself, like it, it's really what these guys need to be doing, and that's the most promising thing about this preseason. It's really seeing those two guys be wired the right way. It's um, you know, I I, I put the question out on Twitter, and uh, some that are listening live are answering on the Dunbar Lumber text line, others are just simply responding uh, on Twitter. You know, incoming 100-point season from Knucklehead on Twitter, at DanRicho underscore. 100 points? Yeah. You know, that seems like a lot. And uh, I don't think it's absurd. It, it, it isn't absurd. No. You know, uh, there was uh, uh, quite a few players that reached the 100-point plateau last year. I don't think it's... Like, Pedersen's going to get there at some point in his career. That's how yeah. much I believe in the talent, whether or not it happens this year. But as JT Miller has alluded to, the points sometimes can be arbitrary. Not in a, you know, they don't mean anything sort of way, but JT Miller didn't need 99 points to to say he had a great year. Mm-hmm. It helped him land a $8 million contract or a $56 million contract, I should say. But he doesn't judge himself on the total points he ends up yeah. with at the end of the year. And if Elias Pettersson doesn't reach 100 points this year, I don't think that 
you know, necessarily that that wouldn't discount the possibility that he has truly reached number one franchise center status in the National Hockey League. He doesn't need to hit 100 points in order to reach that level of player in the NHL. No, he he doesn't necessarily, but he needs to become that type of player. And 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 all those players are not the same, right? Yeah. And I know you and I were talking before the show, uh, the NHL player archetypes and franchise players article written on Daily Faceoff by mm-hmm. our good friend Frank Valley who's on with us every Monday. And it was a really interesting look at the perspective of executives in the NHL of who they think the archetypes are for the types of players that are franchise players and and who those franchise players are. There are 17 of them. Elias Pettersson is not one. He's not one of them. But if the Canucks are going to become a true contender, one of those guys, whether it's Quinn, whether it's Pettersson, heck, both would be incredible. But really, they kind of need one of them. Do you win cups without a franchise player? No. Unless you're the St. Louis Blues. And, I mean, you could even talk about Petrangelo at some point being considered a franchise defenseman. Uh, At his peak, he was at least in that conversation. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can make the case that maybe the Carolina Hurricanes, when they won, Eric Stahl at that point was a franchise centerman, a 100-point centerman, one of the best in the league. But you have to be, if you're not firmly entrenched in that discussion, you have to basically be on the fringes of it at least for a while right like we can sit here and talk about a bunch of guys that are kind of borderline franchise players but we would all agree that maybe for a spell they were can you get there for a spell yeah and that can and can that spell coincide with your window to maybe win a stanley cup that's ultimately what it is but until you have a player that flirts with that line of being a franchise player it's going to be hard for you to truly be a cup contending team but the good news for the canucks is you know, and we'll see if they become that. They have a couple of guys who have the potential to maybe be, become that one day. Well, it, the interesting thing about this list is if you look at the last two cup winners, Colorado Avalanche and Tampa Bay Lightning, Colorado has two players on this list, Nathan McKinnon and Kale McCarr. Yeah. The Lightning have three players on this list, Hedman, Vasilevsky, and Kucherov. Mm-hmm. So... Even just one player doesn't necessarily get you into the Stanley Cup contender type of build as a franchise in the NHL. Absolutely. But, you know, can Pedersen be a player yeah. potentially there? Yes. Vasilevsky's there. Could could Demko? He could. Igor Shesterkin's on this list. So if those guys... Vasilevsky's on the list. And hey, incredible goaltenders, right? Yep. Maybe. Potent- potentially. Demko has the potential to be right there with those guys. There's only three defensemen on the list. Yeah. Roman uh, Yossi's one. Roman Yossi, Kale McCarr, and Victor Hedman. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised there was only three. Uh, the, other, the other goalie on this list, which is probably a surprise, but uh, when you, if you heard uh, Kevin Woodley on the show yesterday, you may not be that surprised at the talent. Ilya Sorokin also on the list. Yeah, Sorokin makes the list too. So, I mean, if those guys are there, you can easily put Pedersen. I mean, sorry, Demko there as well, right? Yeah. Um, so you have a goalie who can do it. You have a p- potential center who can do it. You have a defenseman who can do it. They have to get there though. Yeah. You know, but, but that's ultimately the, the big question. I mean, for as much as we talk about this year, and obviously it's important to make, make the playoffs and, and hopefully those guys get closer to it, but it's... It's that's where they have to get to. Well, and the and the belief in those three players is essentially why you don't take the step back mm-hmm. this summer that a lot of people, including myself, 
uh, thought the Canucks might or should have done. Well, in fairness, I want to say step back, but I mean, I think this year was viewed as no matter what they did, they still want to try to make the playoffs. Yeah. And if they want to make more moves for future still, the, the idea wasn't to be like, all right, we're, we're, t- we're going to take like a two or three year pause and, and the playoffs are not important. It was always going to be kind of retool, reload and whatever we do. And it's not to sink us long term by signing 30 year olds or anything like that, but we're still trying to be competitive here. But what you're trying to do is still buy yourself enough time for things to open up in a couple of years. And ultimately for Pedersen to truly be in that discussion He's, what, two years away from that? This yep. year, maybe he he arrives this year, and then next year he's there. I mean, Demko can be there this season. I mean, with the year Demko had last year, if Demko comes in and replicates that and, and is even slightly better, I mean, he's right there in that discussion. Quinn got there a bit qu- quicker, right? Now, you need the overall supporting cast as well, but you're probably realistically a couple of years if these guys really hit their potential for them to peak at the same time. So once, once we get through it, and if these guys can play at this level... Yeah, you still have to build a team around them, but that nucleus, more than anything, is what's go- is what's what will really determine whether this win team wins a Stanley Cup or not. It, it, it's such an important part of of how you view the Canucks and and where this is going under Patrick Alvine and, and Jim Rutherford. Um, as far as okay, I'm pretty confident Elias Pettersson is going to have a great year. But is he the is he the Canuck you are most confident in having? a strong season is Elias Pettersson the Canuck you have most confidence in that they will have a strong year. Is it Pettersson? Is it somebody else? I think the safest guy is on honestly JT. JT is the safest bet to have a strong JT is the safest bet. I mean, all he's done is consistently score at a high level since yeah. the games of Vancouver. I, I would have thought Quinn Hughes would be the safest bet. I mean, yeah, I mean, Quinn is a safe bet, but at the same time, it's so dependent on your pairings too, like especially for D partners. And if this year, let's say on the back end, they have some problems and Luke Shen's slightly slower and they've got to move guys Does Shen around. Shen look slower to you? No, he looks actually, pretty, actually looks quicker. I got to yeah. say, like watching Quinn Shen last night, he actually looked a little bit quicker, but NHL pace, NHL regular season pace and yeah. stuff like that. But I, I can envision a world where the defense, so much responsibility falls on Quinn. He's going to play such a big role that it doesn't allow him to truly maybe get to, you know, that next level. But I mean, I feel pretty good about Quinn. I feel pretty good about Pedersen. I feel pretty good about JT. I feel pretty good, good about Thatcher Demko. Like, I feel pretty good about those guys. Yeah. If you feel pretty good about those guys, why would you bet against them making the playoffs? And that's been my kind of feeling heading to heading into the season. Uh, there's a lot to to still parse through, and and we will. Um, more on the Canucks coming later on in the show. Ian McIntyre is going to join us. His take on Elias Patterson and more that's going on with the team. But um, an interesting conversation coming up next with Ryan Clark of ESPN. Just threw down a piece about how puck-moving defensemen are starting to take over the league. We saw it with Kale McCarr last year and how dominant he could be from the back end and also what he did in the playoffs as the Conn Smythe winner. We'll get to Ryan Clark next. It's Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw. You are listening to Canuck Central. Canuck Central in the Kintech studio, Dan Richo and Satyar Shaw. 
Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Canuck Central is brought to you by Grip Auto Entire. Quality service you can trust and 14 locations to serve you. Uh, it's an overrated, underrated Thursday, Sat. Mm-hmm. Postponed because we were on location yesterday. Oh, yeah. A lot of good submissions already. Incredible. And uh, uh, we always find a way to be involved <laughs> one way or another, it seems. Yes. So. I got some weekend plans coming, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. I know. You're, I'm very excited for you. Are you? Yeah, I am. Why? Because you have an exciting weekend coming up. <laughs> and, and, and honestly, it, it aligned well for you. You get to, uh, you know, enjoy it with your wife. Yeah. And uh, not a lot of extra cost either. I mean, it's, it's, I'm, like I said, these are one of the good things, and I'm, and I'm, I'm excited for you. So, uh, all right. Uh, we'll leave uh, overrated, underrated, like most of the submissions for uh, the listeners. But I posted one out on Twitter. Overrated, underrated. Uh, weekend trip to Seattle. Mm. Overrated or underrated. Definitely, definitely not overrated. Yeah, underrated. Seattle's awesome. Yeah, I, I personally like really love Seattle. Seattle's fun. Our next guest knows quite a bit about uh, about the Emerald City. Let's bring him in. It's uh, Ryan Clark, ESPN. What's happening, Ryan? Oh, not much. How are you, gentlemen, doing this afternoon? Uh, doing doing pretty well. Uh, you know, you know, us Vancouverites, we like to to do the weekend trip in Seattle. Do you think a weekend in Seattle is overrated or underrated? Underrated, but then again, so it's a weekend in Vancouver. Let's be honest: if you're hanging out in the Pacific Northwest, <laughs> you're likely going to have a good time no matter where you go. So <laughs> there's that reading endorsement. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty much how we feel uh, feel around these parts. It's um, hockey season is upon us, and you, know, you wrote a great piece today over at ESPN talking about uh, the puck moving defensemen and how they are really starting to take hold in the league. Kale McCarr's ascension uh, has just been incredible. I think if you were to, Sat and I have talked about this, like if, if you were to poll all 32 general managers who they would take first overall in a, you know, in a, a draft of all players, I, I wonder if how many take Kale McCarr and how many take Connor McDavid right now. It's interesting just because it all goes back to what you're looking for. And they're both two players who, they're explosive, but they provide it in different ways. I mean, how many times have we seen Connor McDavid do what he did last night where he has control of the puck, and the next thing you know, you're going, he just did that to three or four players. Like, it was nothing. But then with Cale McCart, he finds ways to not only be explosive, but then he can go back and do it on the back end, something that he's getting better at doing. And so really what you're talking about is, are you talking about someone who a lot of people consider to be the most dangerous forward in the game versus someone who's trying to make himself? I think, yeah, I think believe we just lost Ryan. I mean, just, you know, we didn't actually lose him. We lost the feed. Yeah. Just, uh, just as he was getting into uh, what makes Kale McCarr so special. I know. It looks exciting. McCarr is just like next level though. He's, he's, I mean, it's, uh, there, there are no flaws anymore. Yeah. And I was like one of the people like last year, like and during the regular season, even early in the playoffs, like, hey, like, hey, defensively, there's still stuff he can do a lot better. You know, he gets lost in his own zone at times, yada, yada, yada. And then he figured it out. And it wasn't <laughs> even so much that he figured it out. Like, I'm not even sure if his overall defensive awareness necessarily just became significantly better. He just figured out 
how to affect the game with his speed defensively. Yeah. And he just break, figure, figured out not to get out of position. And he was all good to go. Uh, we are having some issues. Hopefully, we'll get Ryan back in a couple of minutes here. But, you know, as far as those defensemen go, I mean, Kale McCarr is the type of player that you really, you can't really try to be like, right? Yeah. Like, you can't, there's, you can't be like, oh, try to be like Kale McCarr. It's like, no, you can't try to be like Kale McCarr. Well, yeah, like even how many guys skate like Quinn Hughes, right? Exactly. There's certain things they can't do. But what's the, th- what's the th- common thread all those guys have? Right now, though, it's the explosive skating. Look at Roman Yossi as well. Like, it it all still comes down to that skating. You, you know, like, Mikar and Yossi can score more than Quinn can. They're more explosive. I say Quinn may be a bit better on his edges than Yossi is. I mean, Mikar is just incredible at everything else. But they are all exceptional skaters, especially Mikar and Yossi with the power that they can skate with. It, it It's a um, type of player that is... Uh, as as the piece points out, you know, starting to take over the league, you know, there is a, a few of the older ones in Shabbat and McAvoy. Uh, you could probably even throw like Chikrin in there. Older is in like they're in their mid twenties. <laughs> right. Okay. So on on Chikrin for a moment, see that great of a skater. Well, how great is Chikrin? Mm. He's a great skater. He yeah. is, but how good is he? You know, because I don't know if he's Mira Heiskanen good. No. And that's what, you know, what it's getting talked about essentially because, you know, he doesn't put up the points. Is he a true number one or is he like a number one on most teams but still not in that elite class of player? We had this discussion with Sarah Valley, what was it, a couple weeks ago uh, about his situation, Chikrin and yeah. what's going on and if he could, could, he could he could get traded and whatever and where that's at. And the example I had, because he kind of mentioned there are people around the league now that are questioning whether he's worth the value Arizona is asking for. They're like, he's good, but is he actually a franchise-defining defen- defenseman? And I remember there was so much discussion around Jay Bomeister mm-hmm. and him being that type of player. And ultimately, Bomeister is a nice player, and he ended up winning a cup with the Blues, and you know he ended up you know playing a nice role. And there were a lot of good things about Jay Bomeister, but he was never truly a f- franchise number one defenseman. So when we're talking about true franchise number one defenseman, how many of those guys really do exist? And is Chikrin really one of those guys? The misidentification of that player could it's huge. set you back for a while. It's too. huge. I mean, think about Chicago with Seth Jones last year. Yeah. Oh, massive. What, what is he making? Nine million? Yeah. Think about the package they paid for him, right? A recent top 10 draft pick in Boakfist. They gave up another lottery pick. Uh, to the Chicago Blackhawks. And they also, on top of that, gave the massive contract to Seth Jones, which uh, they'd probably like to have back. Uh, let's uh, bring back Ryan Clark into the conversation from ESPN. Yeah, Ryan, sorry about that. Uh, phone lines kicked out for a second there, but you were just getting in on uh, what makes Kale McCarr so special and how he affects the game. So, no, just what was being said was this. Like, you think about what makes McDavid so dynamic in some ways it's some of the same things with Kale McCarr in that once he gets acceleration or finds open ice, you don't really know what's going to happen. He uses deception as a big part of his game. But then when you think about what he's doing on the defensive end, you're seeing that he's getting more minutes on the penalty kill. You're seeing that he's someone who's being used in seriously heavy situations, high leverage situations, and he's working to become an all around defenseman. 
So it seems like at that point it would be preference of who do you want, Connor McDavid or Kale McCarr. Either way, you're talking about two people uh, who are among the best in the league. So there you go. That's really not exactly Sophie's choice. <laughs> no, it really isn't. But, you know, it's it's really fascinating looking at, you know, the top defensemen and all the common threads that they kind of have. And, and one guy that, you know, sometimes even though he won a Norris that, that I guess we don't talk about as much is Adam Fox. Still, when you look at Adam Fox and the type of player that he is, is he, where do you really rank him amongst these guys? And what is his best quality? In terms of where you rank him, it's gotta be up there. I mean, when you look at what his best quality might be, it is really the fact that he is massively deceptive, not in the way McCarr is in terms of his movements, but just in the sense of, like, he is someone who can find a way to control and dictate a game. Mm-hmm. And in some ways it's noticeable, in some ways it's not. So you think about just last season, we all spoke so much about the year McCarr and Yossi had, and then Victor Hedman, which talking to Kale McCarr, he was like, Victor Hedman should be up for the Norris every year, and Victor Hedman should win the Norris every year. But you think about the season Adam Fox had last year, 74 points in 78 regular season games. And then in the playoffs, he had five goals and 23 points in 20 games. He's someone who makes a difference in that lineup. He's going to create chances. He's going to score goals. He's going to be able to play a lot of minutes. And and it's interesting just because it's like, well, there might be things about his game that again, may not certainly stand out in a way of like a Makar or, or a Hedman or, or a Yossi. When you look at what he's able to do to really control things, like he's really able just to sort of dominate in ways that, again, you may not notice at first, but then when you start looking at the mm-hmm. film or you start looking at the numbers, you just kind of go like, Jesus, this man's more of a monster <laughs> than we realize. <laughs> they are that damn good. And, uh, you know, they score so many points too. I mean, Yossi flirting with uh, with a hundred points last year. Makar may may end up doing it here in in the next little while. But I, I think it it speaks to uh, a difference in the way that the game is coached. At least when you have a player like that, you know they can act as a fourth forward. They become on the ice. They become a rover at times. Ryan. Well, that's something Jared Bednar was saying was not necessarily the rover, but in the sense of. If you're going to have defensemen get involved, which he's like, look, at this point, I mean, everybody's doing it because you look at the way the game is evolving. It's going to that point if it's not there. It's really about having a five-player offensive unit. And you hear coaches throughout the league talk about that, but with Jared Bednar specifically, he said in order to make it work is everybody on the ice has to have an understanding of what's going on at every position. So that way if there needs to be movement, if things need to shift – Everybody knows where to be, so in the event of a breakdown, you can either regroup or if it's going the other way, people can be in position. But, like, when you look at what defensemen are able to do, everybody that you interview for a story like this, the first thing they talk about is the skating is the biggest difference between what defensemen were like maybe 20, 30 years ago compared to what they're like now. And then the second part of that, of course, is that puck movement. And even then, when we talk about puck movement, is it simply just being able to facilitate? Is it facilitating where you get assists? Is it being able to facilitate to create uh, an opportunity for yourself or for others or for both? And when you think about what defensemen can do, especially at these fulcrum points, it's what's so important just because, yes, we look at these things in five-on-five or even string situations, but even when you look at the power play, it's all about 
where do you find these players? Where do you get set up? And also, like, how do you make the most of your situation in the sense of, like, are you able to take advantage of screens, traffic in front? Are you someone that, again, when you get the puck and people notice, are you able to really attack the net and that way you draw attention and you can distribute to someone else? Or is it one of those things where people kind of realize, hey, we may not want to close in on him because you could get burned just by doing that for, and again, someone distributing, or maybe you just let that one-on-one chance go and you're left to pay that way because they can beat you with a strong shot. So again, it's just, it's another set of options beyond what Mm -hmm. you have with your forwards. Well, and what you mentioned about Bednar telling the guys on the team that they have to really understand what everybody is doing to be aware of Kale McCarr at all times. And you know, what that shows obviously is great coaching and and awareness and all that sort of stuff. But the reality is when you have a player like a Kale McCarr and you have somebody, you know, like Adam Fox or a Quinn Hughes, you want them to take risks. So they're going to have to take more risks. And within the system that you want them to play, you want them to be more adventurous and, and play with that type of style. And sometimes it's easy for people on the outside to be critical of, oh, this guy blew an assignment and look at him, you know, being selfish or whatever. But that's really what the team wants them to do. So it really does come down to also covering up those things as a team and behind them. And really, nobody does it better than the Avs. Well, it's why you're hearing more teams, especially executives, really gush about two-way prospects because when you can have those forwards who are defensively responsible and play the quote-unquote 200-foot game, it's what really allows teams to feel comfortable with those offensive defensemen going forward. So, again, let's take a look at a team like the Colorado Avalanche. And, again, when they're fully healthy, you're going to have Devontae and Kale McCarr as a partnership right there, which, Again, you're talking about two of the best puck movers in the game when you look at points, distribution, you name it. But then, like, let's say they're playing with that line of, let's go with McKinnon, Landeskog, and Rantanen, just because that's a line that's been seen for years, even though there's been some adjustments and alterations. People know the two-way player Gabriel Landeskog is. People are starting to get an idea of, of the defensive nature that Miko Rantanen has with his game, whereas with Nathan McKinnon, you know, there at the time people just kind of thought Nathan McKinnon was – simply about offense and not much else, but then you look at the strides he's made, you're seeing someone who's been getting Selkie votes the last few years. Or even if it's not necessarily those three, like when you had last year's team where you had Nazem Kadri, where you had um, Valeri Nichushkin, you're talking about two players that, again, have a two-way component to their game. And so that's just it. It's like in order for the offensive defenseman to really maximize what they're doing, it helps to have the personnel, especially with your forwards, who have that two-way responsibility. So in the event one of those risks goes the other way, you're not scrambling for answers. There's at least one or two people beyond your defenseman who can come back and help. Well, aside from you know the, the offensive side of it for these defensemen, I think we're also seeing a change in you know, uh, what being good defensively also means in, in the National Hockey League today. It's It's not being Darian Hatcher and being able to, to box somebody out. There's always going to be an element of that, Ryan, don't get me wrong, but um, it's as much about matching the speed of the forwards coming at you, having a good stick. It's just the the way defensemen defend is changing in the way the game is now. It is, but it's also something else. And so there's a reporter that was at the Athletics, some guy named Thomas Strantz. I don't know what's happened to him. Um, (laughs) Ryan, we're going to have to end this call here, hey? I think he started a Billy Corgan cover band. Anyway, the thing is, we were having this conversation once, and one of the points he made about the Avalanche, 
and really just puck moving defensemen as a whole is like, yes, we always talk about the offense, but when you look at how much they control the puck and control possession, you're keeping teams out of your offensive zone. Well, excuse me, out of your defensive zone, their offensive zone. And in a way, that's a form of defense. And it's a different way to sort of look at what are the different ways to defend because, I mean, yes, you're talking about these players, which with a lot of these puck-moving defensemen, they have the skating to where they can keep up with a lot of different players. There's the way that they use that skating, whether it's more agility base, is it quickness, is it speed. Um, if you're one of, like, the bigger defensemen, let's say, like, a Zach Wierenski, like, you're able to use a six foot three frame whether it's just your actual body to get in position or you can use your stick because you have a long enough reach. Um, again, even if you're one of, like, the smaller defensemen, like a Quinn Hughes, there are different things that, like, you can do to sort of make up for that size because, again, maybe you can fit in places that a larger defenseman just simply can't. And so when you look at just how the game is changing and it comes to defending, you're right. The, the days of a guy like a Darian Hatcher are changing, and in that story – Alex Petrangelo made this really interesting point. He said, when you look at how Norris voting works or who wins the Norris, he was like, Chris Pronger was not out here scoring 90 points in a season. Um, Chris Pronger ended up around with 64 or so. But because Chris Pronger was 6'6", 220, he can affect the game physically in so many different ways. Whereas if now with these defensemen, I mean, maybe some of them are able to do it physically, but they're going to have to find other ways to do it. And you're starting to see that now because, again, you're talking about a group of players who, yes, they were athletes back in the day, but now, as we've seen, smaller players are getting more of a chance. And that's one of the ways they're able to survive is, yes, it's the offensive capabilities, but it's what they're able to do in a two-way component as well. I do believe that, you know, part of this uh, transition for the game or evolution of the game comes down to how data has influenced the way we think about hockey. And you mentioned it, you know, if you spend more time in the offensive zone, inherently that is a way of defending. So, you know, you could look at a guy and say, well, we're controlling 50, 57% of the shots or 55% of the high danger chances when he's on the ice. We can live with that if they're not the strongest defensive player as long as they keep that sort of uh, rate up. Well, and that's where just, again, it gets interesting, like you just said, with the advanced metrics, because it seems like more and more, whether you call it Corsi or shot at 10 percentage, which I think Dominic Chisholm at The Athletic, when we've had conversations, that's what he's referred to it as. Like, it is really about possession. And, I mean, when you look at all the underlying metrics in the charts, like you see these moments in games when teams are, you know, playing at the pace of if they're on a power play, even if it's, you know, an even strength situation. And if you're a team with defensemen that can hold on to the puck, it makes a world of difference because, like, one, you're keeping possession away from the other team. And, two, you are tiring out that other team because if you have one of these defensemen, let's say you are the Canucks with all the talent the Canucks have, and you're letting someone like Quinn Hughes operate and facilitate, it's going to get tiresome trying to chase a guy like that around when he can move for days and days and days. But then, like, when you're moving the puck, if you're him – who are you going to pass it to? Like Elias Pedersen, someone that, again, he's going to be able to move for days and days. J.T. Miller, Connor Garland, Bo Horvath, Brock Besser when he's healthy. Like the point is this, like having that possession is so crucial because it's more than just the offensive chances that you're getting, but it's the way that you're able to take those chances away from another team. And not only that, but you can wear them down in the process. 
Well, and one thing that uh, Dan and I were discussing when, uh, you know, our, our calls, our, our call uh, systems, just our phone system started shutting down on us. And, and we apologize for that. But during that, we were discussing when it comes to identifying those star level, you know, superstar level franchise defensemen, it can be a risky business because if you do go and acquire somebody via trade and pay the amount of money it takes and give up um, the assets as well. Well, you're locked into that player. And we talked about Seth Jones and how he, at one point he was in that discussion, now has been for a few years. And all of a sudden, you're, you're in a bloated situation. And one guy that's who's talked about a lot right now is Jacob Chikrin. And nobody disagrees that Jacob Chikrin is an incredible defenseman. But are we getting ahead of ourselves or are people getting ahead of themselves by including him in the category of the very best? The thing with Chikrin is this, when we talk about the puck moving element is this. Chikrin is someone who definitely scores a lot of goals, but of course there is a conversation to be had about, okay, where do you fit him in with that group? Do you consider him to be a top pairing option? Is he a three? Is he a four? But the thing is this, when you're able to look at what he does, more specifically the fact that he is someone who is going to get you goals, like that definitely does help. And so you think about what he did a couple seasons ago when he was getting Norris consideration, 18 goals, 23 assists, and in 56 games, so amounts to 41 and 56. It's definitely a high number. Now, yes, last year those numbers were 21 over 47, not as strong as you like. But it, with someone like Chikrin, it's also the idea of like, okay, if he was maybe in, a, in another system or maybe not another system, uh, a place where there is maybe a little bit more offensive firepower around him, how different would those numbers look? But then what maybe hurts that argument is you look at the year Shane Gosses Behar had. I mean, you're talking about someone in Shane Gosses Behar where the thought was like, okay, what are the Arizona Coyotes getting in Shane Gosses Behar? And he gives them 14 goals, 37 assists for 51 points in 82 games. Shane Gosses Behar did more than just give them a puck mover. He's given them an asset that, like, if you're a team that's getting close to the deadline and you're looking for a puck mover, maybe you're the Coyotes. That's something that can get you some serious assets going forward. But to this whole point of what you're all saying about some of the defensemen people like Seth Jones, I mean, it's just this, it's asset management. And it's about, in a lot of ways, what do you think is the best approach for your organization? Because like, let's think about when that team went out and got Seth Jones. They got Seth Jones. They have Marc-Andre Fleury. They have Alex Dabrinkit, Kane and Taze. There's a thought that maybe there is something there. Maybe you can't exactly say what, but there's potentially something there and that maybe this is a team that they can build towards possibly getting a wild card spot. It doesn't work out that way. Whereas if now like you look at the Blackhawks and sure you've got Seth Jones under contract for many years at 9.5 million and he is a 28 year old. But at the same time, when you look at the rest of that roster, we don't know what's going to happen with those four UFAs being Patrick Kane, Jonathan Kays, Andres Athanasiu, uh, as well as Max Domi. And so maybe those are players you keep. Maybe those are players that you move on for other assets. Either way, regardless, you have people to build around, and Seth Jones is one of those players to build around because not that this is a similar situation, but we talk a lot about the Los Angeles Kings. Remember, it wasn't that long ago people looked at them and thought, how is a rebuild going to work with Jonathan Quick, Dustin Brown, Andre Kopitar, and Drew Doughty? Are they better off sort of moving those pieces and getting something in return? And now you look at where the Kings are and having those veterans, of course, Dustin Brown retires, it makes a big difference in what you can do going forward. So if you're the Chicago Blackhawks, maybe that's the hope with Seth Jones long-term. 
Ryan, uh, we really appreciate the time. Thanks for this, and uh, great peace. We'll be talking again soon. All right, you got it. Thanks for having me. Uh, there is Ryan Clark. You can follow him on Twitter, at Ryan S. Clark, uh, covering uh, the NHL from a national perspective with ESPN. And check out the piece up now at ESPN, how Kale McCarr, Adam Fox, and other fast young defensemen are changing the NHL. Uh, we're we're going to keep things going on this front. Um want to do a little bit of a prediction on some of the trophy winners. Ooh, I like this. But if you think about uh, the Norris Trophy, Kale McCarr, I mean, after the season he had last year, Kale McCarr feels like he could go on a Nick Lidstrom type run. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Winning six of seven Norris trophies uh, through the 2000s. Uh, but we'll talk more about that coming up. It's Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw. You are listening to Canuck Central.